Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Starving Writers Guild Anime, Manga, and Comics Podcast. I'm your host, Christian. Welcome back to episode two. So, learned a lot of new things since last we recorded. Uh, thanks to our helpful friend, John, who managed to get all those files edited for me. I learned that after listening to myself, I say like a lot. And I didn't know that. And I don't know how I feel about that. I don't want to be part Valley Girl. It's not me. And just the amount of times I said, like, woo, after responding to something, also grated on my nerves. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh. And, and add that on to the fact that I've always hated the sound of my own voice. It's like, wow, this is going to be rough. But at the same time, like, I also had a lot of fun listening to myself talking. I know how self-indulgent that is, and, well, just we're going to have to work on that together because I am very self-indulgent. And in the, in the process, you know, I learned this. I think I like this. I want to keep going. So moving on from that, we do have some news. I will hopefully, by tomorrow, actually be posting these episodes because I had a bit of a snag trying to... You know, get things ready. Like, definitely, goodness gracious, the worst thing so far has been trying to get a picture uh, sized correctly for, you know, the official release. And I just kind of had to give up with that because it's not my thing. I don't know how to edit that correctly. I'm definitely going to have to send that one John's way and be like, look, work your computer magic, man, please. I'm an idiot. I can't do this. <laughs> And so I'm in the process of uh, finishing all that up. So hopefully uh, by tomorrow, which would be Saturday at this point, to me, uh, I will have episode zero and one up. And then when John is finished with this, I'll have episode two up. And I'm going to try to get ugh, way better on my scheduling. It's like I wanted to do this last night, but I mean, it just didn't work out. I wasn't feeling that well. So I didn't want to like, you know, go in this halfway and give you guys half of what you deserve if you're listening in and care about this. So that's where we stand on that. Um, also, depending on how tonight goes, I may just make an executive decision to split this up further. And I mentioned this before. I may just split up the manga from the comics and record separate episodes for those. How I'm going to do that for the numbering system, I don't know. But, I mean, depending on how late this goes, I'll just change that. So I just wanted to let you know where my heart's at with that. And moving on, uh, since last week, uh, what have I been in? Um, for the most part, haven't watched too much. Uh, I watched a couple uh, horror films. Let's see, uh, what was an Argentinian film? Oh, gosh, what was the name? It came out in, like, 2017. I, I can't remember. What it was, that was good. I think it was involved with Shudder. I may be wrong in mixing films together. Uh, see, other than that, I'm continuing The Ultraman. I just stopped with episode 42. So I have eight more left to finish that off. And I'll be going straight from there to Ultraman 80, which I believe is the next series. Don't know what anime I'm going to be following after that. Now, seasonal anime I'm following... Uh, this isn't all of them. This is just off the top of my head. Let's see, I'm up. I'm up to date with Sakugan, 
which has been one of my pleasant surprises of this series. Uh, let's see, Tact OP Destiny, I think is the name. Uh, that's also been a, a pleasant surprise. And the one everyone's been looking forward to, Komi-san, Can't Communicate. I've been enjoying that a lot. Uh, which means it's not normally my thing, but it's nice to have that little slice of life every now and then. So, moving on to the podcast proper. We are going to be in Black Clover, page 310, Unyielding Right and Wrong. Now, we left off with Xenon and, you know, clashing. Uh, they're continuing that. You know, he's using his new star magic, and Xenon is using his bone and spatial magic to uh, summon Demon Sword Dainsleaf, which is a German sword from Folk Legend, I believe. I'm not 100% on that. Which I think kind of fits their, you know, Spade Kingdom's kind of setting. It's even a, around the series has been German, you know, shout outs and the like. But <clears throat> uh, we also see he's also cast something called Spatial Rupture, which Yuna notices is, you know, causing him to be able to, to block it. And he can't regenerate the broken stars that he's trying to, he's zipping back and forth from that's trying to make him a bit more unpredictable, kind of like the, uh, the fight with, uh, Vanessa and Asta and Finral versus Despair guy. What was his name? I could never remember his name because he would, was, oh my gosh, because all he would go on was just, oh, despair, 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 you know, because one of the worst parts of Black Clover is like, here's my one thing, and I'm always going to say that one thing. Whatever. So, Zenon uh, goes through a little bit of a flashback here, talking with his three other siblings. Now, there's been some debate in the fandom here, too, about what does this represent? Because there's only two right now uh, in the present. So some people are throwing out hypotheses that the fourth sibling is Julius, uh, the Wizard King. Which I kind of see where they're coming from. And the idea being is like, oh, well, he made a deal with a devil and left the kingdom because he wouldn't become king or something like that. And decided to start over in the Clover Kingdom instead. Uh, There's certain things I like about that hypothesis, but others I'm like, eh, that's kind of character assassination to an extent. Maybe if that's true, Tabata could work it. But I don't see Julius doing that. Others are thinking that it's possible this brother doesn't exist. And the devils are messing with their minds. Which is an interesting take. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. They are devils. I mean, Prince of Lies and all that. So it's kind of the fourth brother is spouting off this philosophy in the flashback. How, like, you know, it's all meaningless what they're doing. You know, they just, we need, in order to create a truly peaceful spade kingdom, they need to be the one in charge. And they need to just make people submit to them. It's a flash forward to the present. You know, is still trying to get away from him. Uh, Cast a spell called Spirit of Boreas, which managed to just deflect some of the attacks, but once again, Zenon uses Spatial Rupture to destroy the remaining uh, stars that Yuno has from his secondary grimoire. He knows all his stars are gone. He can't teleport a defend. He has no way to destroy the Devil's Heart. This time, it's over. And we get some narration. Talking about Saint Stage, which is something we learned from the Heart Kingdom. that some mages can attain, 
It says, Saint Stage is attained when the resonance between a spirit and its host is very close to 100%. By staying in a fight that kept him on the brink of death, Yunel obtained the power to destroy a devil. In the face of overwhelming power, everything is pointless. Zenon is smiling in his... Uh, oh, gosh. This is some nightmare fuel right here. It says, I win. Slashes forward. But unfortunately for him, fortunately for us to read her, we see the stronger the mage, the more stars are born. As you know, use a spell called conjunction. Saint spirit. And slashes. I almost thought he was Oster for a second from the art. <laughs> Got it. Just nice little double spread. It says, you mean we win. And that's how we end this chapter. So not a lot of substance in this one. Some, some slight, slight hints of what could be going on in the background here. Um, don't really have too much more to say, so we'll move on from Black Clover to Blue Box. Blue Box, Chapter 26. I'll be rooting for you. So, uh, hands in the air, who thought Christian was wrong last week? Well, guess what? You're right. It was not a fever dream. Shinatsu Senpai is real. And she's actually in the room with him uh, trying to cheer Taiki up. And like he's trying to say, look, like get away from me, I'm sick. But she looks him straight in the face and says, people who are sick should just stay quiet. Should just stay quiet. He can only look at her blankly and say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and we get a cool little color spread here of both Hina and Shinatsu in like witch's attire. Like I, this is really well drawn. Like, that's one of the things I do like about Blue Box is it's consistently drawn well. Um, so Taiki spends more time. Uh, Chinatsu makes him some udon since uh, his mom won't be there. And <laughs> poor guy, uh, his nose is so stuffed up he can barely taste it. But she sits down in the room with him, says, Is there anything else you want? Let me know. Which, which he says, Thanks. And he kind of stares at her for a bit. And she says, uh, Nothing. And thinking to himself, It's been so long since we were this close together. He says, I'm really feeling fine now, so you can go back to your room. But she cheers him up, says, hey, I'll stay here until you fall asleep, because you might have a relapse. So he complains, no, I'm not that sleepy, I'm fine. And she suggests instead, instead, then how about we chat a little? I mean, between the tournament and exams, we haven't been able to talk lately. And you said so yourself, Taiki, that after the tournament's over, you have a question for me. And he ponders on that. And he tries to deflect it a bit, like, kind of casually. Uh, she, she's not taking it. And says, fine. Then can I ask you a question? And he says, okay. She says, earlier today, I saw the badminton team's posters with their goals written on. I thought you'd write, get to nationals. So I was wondering why you didn't. So Taiki says, that's because during my matches, there were a number of times where I wish I'd land, wished I'd landed my smash. I think maybe nationals was too lofty a goal for me. Playing in an actual tournament, I found so many people better than me. You know, the bad boys of badminton. He's just too nice. He can't be, can't be in badminton if he's not a bad boy. You know, that one sport when you think of bad boys. <laughs> oh, gosh. I didn't realize how tired I was. We'll get through this. We're just starting. We can do this together. At Shinatsu Senpai, you experience how tough it is to get the Nationals as a first year, yet you were still determined to take on the challenge. 
but all I had was the desire to go and the desire to win. I don't think I realized I was in over my head. Did you got to give this cute little pose with her, you know, her hand over her chin and her cheek, just looking at him, just staring at him and smiling. He kind of gets a little freaked out. And she says, so even you think about those kind of things, Taiki. I mean, I already thought you would, but I figured you're the type to never show it. Why not be a new and improved Taiki? Having a lofty goal while also seeing yourself as you are now. Taiki, you said I was determined, but I've always wondered in the corner of my mind if maybe I'm in over my head, or if it's just impossible for me. Determination becomes a kind of pressure, and sometimes I think of how much easier it'll be just to just settle. I can't stand it when I think that way, but it was that drive I had to go to nationals that got me up first thing in the morning. That's why if you have a goal of how you want to be or what you want to do, then I want you to value that. Don't be afraid of having lofty goals. No matter how many, excuse me, no matter how out of your league you might feel, if that turns into the driving force that makes you work harder, then I think that's enough. Those are the kind of people I'll be rooting for. And that's all he needs to hear. Obviously, with his motivation to get with her. And he just takes a moment to think to him and says, gosh, I, I love this about her. And he looks at her and says, I'm going to make an addition to my goal sheet. And she smiles at him and says, okay. Which, before we go on, I, I like this. I, I know last time I'd said, like, you know, that's that's a realistic way of looking at things. Like, you know, maybe I won't get in the Nationals, but what I can do is focus on the one thing that made me lose last time. But I also like how this is contradicting what I liked last time. In that, you know, it's a good thing to have lofty goals. Like, I mean, I'd love to be on a New York list one day. But realistically, at this point in my life, I'm not. But if I always say, well, I'm always going to be here, am I ever going to advance beyond where I'm at? Not with that attitude. So I love that Chinatsu is giving this little pep talk to him in, in direct contradiction to last chapter. So we move on. And uh, uh, she's uh, going to clean up. But in the moment, they kind of, as he tries to get up to help her, kind of twist around, and she lands on top of him. And we've got a little, you know, romantic comedy moment here, just staring at each other. She's looking at Dan and he says, you know, I'm sorry, I lost my balance. And we just see, at the last point, the word what, as they're inches away from each other's face. And that's the end of Blue Box. So, really cool chapter. Oh, a side note, I'm trying to avoid saying the word fun and interesting, and I probably failed on both accounts beforehand. Maybe I noticed, maybe I didn't. So, yeah, th- this this is definitely very cool. Um, see, you get a great moment between the two of them. They can bear their hearts out toward each other. Like, you know, maybe romance will bloom later on, but at this moment in time, like, they need the friendship before that. So I really support going into all of that first. Next up on our list is Dr. Stone. Uh, chapter Z equals 215. Oh boy, Dr. Stone this week. So after last chapter that we're proposing to make a man-made satellite uh, and put it, put it obviously in the space and there, Sinku is explaining like, you know, if we do this, we have to make sure it doesn't fall. And what this does, they put it in orbit and they'll give it energy 
and using solar panels because there's always going to be solar energy up there. So there's no need whatsoever to worry about making anything else. So they constantly have that satellite in rotation, getting constant energy. That way they can map the moon out to see where they need to land to find Y-Man. And we see uh, the, the role, excuse me, uh, the list of things they're going to need this time to make solar panels. We get fluorite. We get old Sulfurina back. Been a while since we've seen her. Uh, seawater. Magnesium. Magnesium fluoride, which will make anti-reflective coating. Then we also need glass, gold, selenium, and copper. And with that, we have solar fire acquired. And poor Sawika's just got that, that cute little face of, like, I, I kind of understand, but I don't understand at the same time. So big panels like that are going to float around high up in the sky where Mr. Sun's always shining. The satellite will have a battery that never dies, Chrome says. Bad. And now we've also been a launch site in the time since now. We're going to learn there's been a time skip. Uh, we'll get into that in a bit. It says, Unmanned Rocket Acquired. Uh, we've also seen level 99 rocket engine acquired, made by Dr. Zeno, who's looking particularly smug here. It says, I must say, Senku, that is one elegant craft. And we see this, the Senku 1, the first rocket made in the stone world. And uh, actually looking pretty impressive for you know, a group of people who have no business being able to do these things. But thank God they have super geniuses around. Senku says, <laughs> right back at you, Zeno. You finished the engine in three short years. I remember that, by the way. Good to know your skills are still sharp after napping for a few thousand years. And we see, oh, what is your name again? This, I had, I definitely put this down. Uh, Minami. Thank you, past Christian. Knowing future Christian would forget. Uh, Minami, who in the past was a reporter, is now, uh, you know, reporting on site about the first ever rocket, the New World's first ever rocket will launch a satellite into space. And Candace, being Debbie Downer, says, you do realize this broadcast won't reach further, farther than mainland Japan. She says, just let me have this. This is my dream. At least we got his arm crossed as it's all thanks to NASA's Dr. Zeno, the world's preeminent rocket scientist, and Senku, the only high schooler to launch a homemade rocket into space. <laughs> For the world's ultimate master people dream team, getting an unmanned rocket up into space is going to be a walk in the park. <laughs> And the moment he says that, the rocket turns to the left as soon as it tries to launch and goes straight into the sea. <laughs> so we see uh, Soyuz, I think, and I can't tell who the person is. Maybe Genro? Or Genro? I always get those two confused, even though they look nothing alike. It's just the similar names. Uh, uh, bringing the rocket out of the sea. Antino's inspecting it. says the, the thermal insulation was corroded by gas, which poked a hole in the nozzle. Everything looks so solid on paper, Senku says, but I guess our Stonewall creations are always going to be kind of shoddy. So they spend more time, Kaseki's building more rockets. We see uh, the months pass on. Second rocket <laughs> blows up on the launch pad. <laughs> and once again, say, hey, you know, it's, it's a miracle we got this far. Uh, uh, Sai even brings up a good point. It's just like how encoding, forgetting a single hyphen in a line can cause your whole program to fail. And I'm liking that they're doing this number one, before I get ahead of myself. Because it'd be a little easy if on the first rocket they got it right. You know, even on the second one, I'd be a little... Eh. But now we're on rocket three, and that one falls as well. 
<laughs> and Zeno and Sinku are looking over it again. Uh, Zeno says, an air bubble and a vaporized fuel this time. It busted the inner wing, Sinku says. So one more time. Fails and explodes. As you're looking up, once again, in a two-page spread, the rocket explodes. And Yo is looking on down from the ground and says, God, it's got to break your spirit. How many years has it been now of going back to square one over and over? Those two are unreal. How the heck did they do it? But we see Zeno and Senku are just spending the rest of their time like this is the greatest challenge in the world, which is very true to their, their nature. And just going at it over and over again, no matter how, long, how much time has passed. But they're not the only ones working on something. We see Suika and Chrome working on their return rocket. Back. So I have mixed feelings on this chapter. Uh, for the most part, like I said before, I love the, the pass-fail system they're doing here. as uh, all failure right now, but it makes sense. Like, it'd be too easy if they got it first try, second try. But I like, it's like, they're continuing to figure out, okay, we got this right, we got this wrong. I mean, that's just how science works. I mean, how many times, I mean, obviously with Edison, with the people working under him, not just him, by the way. Uh, what was the famous line? Uh, you you failed to make the light bulb like 99 times. It's like, no, I, I just learned 99 ways how to not make a light bulb. I definitely butchered that quote. But you get what I'm saying. It's like, that's what science is learning. Okay, I want this result to happen. But if I do this and it doesn't happen, I've learned not to use that in the future. So I can try something else. And definitely with... The two of them, Sinku and Zeno, and Suika and Chrome, are both learning this exact same thing. I'm liking that. Now, my big issue with this, and everyone probably knows what it is, the time skip. Kind of glossed over here? Three years? That's a lot of time. Uh, especially if no one looks like they've aged. And you would think someone like even Suika would look older than she is right now. I heard some people tossing around the theory of maybe they've been petrified when they're not needed, which is w a weird way to do this. I'm also wondering why they haven't like taken more people out of the petrification and be like, hey, you know anything about rockets? If they've had three years, that's kind of a huge oversight. Maybe they're just being cautious and they don't want to revive too many people. Maybe. Or maybe the author is just like, eh, this is what I want to happen. Don't think about it too much. So, whatever. Uh, so, like I said, mixed feelings. I'd say mostly positive. But that, that time skip thing kind of just... Yeah, it just messes with me. And I am definitely not alone in that. I saw a lot of people like looking at that weirdly. So, moving on to our first chapter in this podcast of Don't Blush, Sakime-san which will be chapter 30. As we see, yesterday at school, the whole class learned that Sakime-san and I are dating. Uh, this is Takadono, our main uh, male lead here. And he says, good morning to his class. And they ask him, hey, how long have you and Sakime-san been dating? And he says, uh, and he can't think, because he can't remember how long it's been. Because they've kind of been dating in secret, so like, how long have they legitimately been dating? 
he looks over at his friend, Ami Yakun, and says, hello. Uh, excuse me, good morning. He looks at him and says, Takadono, good morning, and runs away, which confuses him. Uh, they're doing experiments in class, but his friends are telling him to join Sekame-san's group instead of joining them. Uh, and once again, later on, uh, they're trying to have lunch together, but it's the same thing. They're pushing him over to her, quite literally. And the, the girl, uh, Sekame-san's friends are asking her if she wants to eat with him. And he realized, oh, I didn't realize you guys had lunch plans for today. But the girls say, why don't the four of us eat together? So in contrast to the boys, they're staying together. And there's this awkward moment, like, both groups are kind of staring at each other, like, what are they doing? What does it, what's going on here? Until uh, one of Second Maze friends, uh, Senbayashi, finally has enough and says, what's, what's with you guys today? Why do you keep leaving Takadono-kun out? It's super lame that you would leave him out just because you took Sekimei-san away. And the boys kind of look at her. They say, you don't understand at all, Senbayashi-san. We, we, we're sad that Sekimei-san took Takadono away. <laughs> As it's revealed, like, they, they were so happy for them. Uh, and they just want everything to go well. Uh, he want, they want him to take care of his girlfriend first. Uh, you know, because now that he's dating Sekimei-san, there's no way we can try to interfere. But Takadona looks at him and says, nothing's going to change. My girlfriend is important to me, but so are my friends. Let's keep playing billiards like we always have. And they just scream out his name, big old guy group hug. And they make plans to go out that day. And Sekimei, just giving that little mm, moment of, I, I want to play too. And Takadona says, of course you can. So with Sekimei-san, there's not really a lot of substance in this, but it's just... Just wholesome fun. And that's why I include this, because I like to be reminded of series that are outside my norms of what I go for. Like I said, I, I typically go Battle Shonen. And, you know, even that can get tiring after a while, even in the magazine best known for it. So that's why I included that, too. Uh, even though, like, there's not going to be too much discussion about it. It's fairly straightforward most of the time. So we'll move on to the Elusive Samurai. Yep, because no Dragon Ball Super, because only once a month. We are on Chapter 37, Reform 1334. Now, oh gosh, this chapter. Um, yeah, I'm going to skip a lot of this, because uh, learning character names, it's, it's not a bad chapter. It's just, uh, it's not designed for me. So I'll summarize what's going on here. So Emperor Godaigo has been pushing reforms that unfortunately are falling through. Some people are taking advantage of them, uh, trying to make themselves more money. Other people, uh, like, uh, I believe, I don't know if we've been introduced to these characters before. I I'm trying to remember, this has only been 37 chapters, and there are tons of names to remember. And I'm failing miserably, as you can tell by my distress. Uh, these are Morinao and Moriyasu uh, Kono. They are brothers, if I remember correctly. They're also working with the Ashikage brothers. Uh, these are previously people who worked with the Hojo clan. Uh, one of them we've seen on screen together. I can't remember. Like I said, I, I'm getting all these names together, and it is not holding. And they're just discussing like what they need to do, and how you know. They need to do. They need to bring reforms somewhere that satisfies the people, but 
does it mean toppling the shogunate? Does it mean crushing the Hojo rebellion? They're trying to figure it out. And <clears throat> one of them, uh, one of the four discusses, you know, there's a greedy demon inside of me, and that is what it cries out for. That being the idea of being a reformer and being the person that everyone looks up to and says, yeah, that guy. I want him in charge. Or maybe just being the guy behind the guy. And I'm sorry, like, this is going to be a rougher chapter because I, I just bad with names. So we'll move on all the way to Suwa. As we see a group of people that uh, Tokiyuki had helped save are now practicing, you know, fighting one another and preparation for combat. And he's with Yoshige. And he's asking him, what's going on? They're all training really hard. And he looks at uh, Tokiyuki and says, do you recognize any among them? <laughs> It's too far to get a good look, but I don't think I've seen them at the shrine. Yoshike says they are all survivors of Rahojo retainers. I sheltered them when they sneak in the Shinano. The other day, we surpassed 100. These warriors will serve under your direct command in the great conflict to come. That is to come. For security reasons, I kept your existence secret. None of them recognize your face. If you reveal yourself when we rise up, their morale will know no bounds. Toki, you could think to himself, I have to hand it to him. He always seems to have time on his hands, but he's been preparing in secret. Next, allow me to introduce some men who will participate in the upcoming battle. And we see three people who I'm almost 100% certain we have not seen before. Uh, one of them has a uh, falcon on his shoulder. The others uh, dressed more traditionally samurai in the middle. And the big one is the big one who looks like he's about to crush a rock. I don't know what that says in Japanese on the boulder. And he says, they are directly loyal to me, the three great generals of the Suwa sect. The Kakushi is preparing a large-scale invasion. I have reports of suspicious movements. So we will aid your allies across the land as we fill in your ranks for the big fight. And that's how the chapter ends. Um, so like I said, I don't have too much to say about this. It's, it's a setup chapter. It's what we need. It's necessary as someone who hates writing chapters like that for books. Like, I mean, it's it's just how things are. Are sometimes. It's not fun, but it's what you have to do. So we'll move on to our first Fire Force chapter in the podcast. Now, previously uh, we saw, gosh dang it, I hate remembering this. Uh, apparently, Iris was killed off screen and impaled by something. So that's wonderful, you know. I'm I'm really hoping that's oh my gosh that's misdirection and they're just making uh, Shinra and show think this is happening just to make Shinra mad, which would be a nice twist because if they just make Iris die off screen like that, that's just awful. I hate it. But uh, they both tried to attack Halmea, who is in her true form, as she's being helped by the evangelist. But the attacks didn't connect. And we'll uh, go over to them. Sho says, I attacked her during stop time. Shinra says, yeah, me too. What did you do, Halmea? She says, not a thing. My existence has been here and only here, just as despair had always existed. Shinra says, don't play with me. What did you do? Sho says, the only thing that could make this happen is Inca's ability, which I forgot to mention, I actually guessed, which you could say, oh, sure you did, Christian. You just didn't say it on the last podcast. But I did. Because that's what it does. Homea says, The souls of the other pillars are with me now. And of course, that would include Sumeray. 
and she forces Inca and Sho, uh, excuse me, Sho and Shinra back with the powers. They're unable to, you know, really get up for a second. They're bleeding. She says, "Would you, the Savior, prefer to die in me and to die in place of me, the Saint? Either way, despair will arrive unto, unto the world all the same." Shinra goes forward, uh, forward to attack again, misses once more. Says, "I know I should be hitting her." But nothing happens. Like she keeps going for rapid attacks with his with his feet. She says it's useless. Fate itself has decided that I can't be touched. Uh, the more that this is going on, Shem is getting madder. Shows trying to get him to calm down. Uh, but Almeida just attacks him once more with this shockwave blast and it gets him sent back. He's bleeding even further. He says, "Let me get this straight. Even if we defeat Almeida, if I die, the world falls into despair. Then what the hell are we supposed to be doing?" Chef says, calming yourself for starters. Your despair or death will undoubtedly tr become a trigger for a great cataclysm that will destroy the world. The only one who controls the end of the great cataclysm is you, brother. You're the savior, and the saint has no say in that. Shinra says, I'm not going to die, and I'm not going to be swallowed up by rage, but I will stop Haumea. I fight for the sake of humanity. He attacks once more, doesn't land. My death won't be the one that's fated by the likes of you. We have to surpass her. Misses once more. Uh, we see, oh, I thought the evangelist was smiling there, but no, that's just part of the outfit. They're forced back once more. It says, for the sake of my comrades. But Home interrupts. But have you actually managed to protect the people most important to you? Which, gut punch. We see Iris smiling, which just makes Shinra even matter. And show once again tries to calm him down. But Home says, the flames of rage can only be extinguished by the death of your opponent. Brother, it's okay. Revenge will turn me into a devil. Hame says, It is also true that you became a hero thanks to those very flames of vengeance. Perhaps all this time you masked your actions and claims behind a so-called sense of justice because that sounded nice. In narration, we get, The saint's words bared no hostility. He could tell it was absolute justice, and all that righteousness did nothing but frustrate him to his core. Shinra says, I'm a fire soldier, not a devil. I fight for the sake of saving people's lives. The narration continues, but those words were as weak as a small fish struggling to go up a waterfall. The weight couldn't be compared to the words of a god who spoke the consensus of humanity's subconscious. Humans have persisted on living purely by facades and lip service, and that pretense is often op opposite to their true feelings. Humans were originally savages true to their instincts. Civilization's advance suppresses that. So what are his true feelings? The answer is exceedingly simple and awfully instinctual. He wanted to kill her. His salvation only exists in her death. Although even he understands that this isn't true salvation, he still felt he needed to kill her. We get this awesome panel of fire surrounding Shinra, and his face is kind of blacked out. Sho tries to step, stop him once more. Stop it, big brother. This is exactly what Haumea wants. Shinra looks down to him and says, It's okay, Sho. Don't worry, I'm not angry at all. Haumea says, You're a terrible liar, Shinra. I will fight to protect everyone. Then how are you going to protect yourself? As he gets donutted. <laughs> to my JoJo fans, you'll understand exactly what that means. By Haumea, she says, Your death will complete the great cataclysm, thus bringing salvation to humanity. Mm. So Fire Force is definitely near its end. And it's one of those series that gets so wacky in like, a depressing and fun way. Uh, I don't know how to put the words in my head out sometimes when I'm talking about Fire Force. 
So my guess right now is obviously they're they're trying to get Shinra upset, trying to make him get away from his role as a savior, and to do so, he would have to give in to hatred, which is really interesting because it's one of the final temptations he's suffering. I mean, if you look at the way, uh, since Shinra and Sho are both virgin births, obviously the parallel is there with Jesus. Now, I've been a member of the church for years. Uh, I gave my life to Christ years ago uh, when I was six, and I've studied the book extensively. Like, if Jesus, because uh, one of the reasons you'll see in the Bible is Jesus gets tempted in the desert by Satan. And Satan's intent is for Jesus to commit a sin, because if Jesus sins, then he is no longer able to save humanity from itself by dying on the cross, because now Jesus is impure. He is no longer a pure being who has never sinned and never known sin, therefore is worthy to be the willing sacrifice on the cross to take away our sin from ourselves if we accept him. And I think they're kind of going that way here. Obviously, Japan, not really a Christian nation, any close. Not, definitely America isn't either, as much as people like to think we are. But we know more about it compared to Japan, which I think less than 2% of the population is Christian last time I checked. I've probably said this like five times before. Elsewhere and other things that were recorded that never got to see the light of day. Um. So maybe this is a bit of Eastern influence on a more Western idea through Christianity. So I'm thinking that's their intent right now is they want Shinra to fall. Because if Shinra falls, if he murders her in cold blood, then he's no longer worthy to be the savior. That's my guess. We'll see if I'm way wrong like I normally am outside of the last chapter where I was right. I also hope Iris isn't dead. I'll be very frustrated with this for a good female character just dying for the sake of the hero. It's been overplayed over and over again, but we'll see. Like, oh my gosh. Red Hood. The axe is real, my friends. Red Hood number 16. The True Book. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so glad I'm covering this. It goes literally bonkers. And I'm not just saying that because there's a character named Bonkers in this series. <laughs> and notice, oh no, Velu's gone. What's going on? We flash over to Debonair, who's being visited by Cinderella. Uh, both are uh, uh, Grim and Debonair are su surprised to see her there, who says, we have to talk. Debonair says, what makes you think I'd talk, want to talk to you? And Velu excuse me, Grim says, how is someone from the list this close to HQ? There's a barrier surrounding the entire island. And Cinderella just says, Velu created an opening. Anyway, Debonair, let's set our grudge aside for a sec, okay? The world is about to end. And if that makes sense in context, maybe, uh, considering what's about to happen. Let's hope this series is actually in order this time on Manga Plus, unlike last week, an already confusing chapter. So we see the mayor uh, going over what he said through last chapter. And uh, what's his name? Doesn't matter. The series is about to get axed. Pointing a gun. Uh, but the actual Red Hood says, don't bother, it'll be a waste of ammo. And the mayor looks at him and says, it's been a while, legendary Red Hood. Well, well, if it isn't the ex-hunter and the second Red Hood, Ludwig Geppetto. And yes, uh, bringing up the Geppetto you're thinking of. 
Billy says, what? Mayor, you used to be a hunter? What's everyone talking about? Who are all you people? Where are we? Uh, the Red Hood says, this is the true book. Gifted to us by higher beings, it's the device we use to build the world. That which is written on its pages then happens. It is effectively a tome of inverted reality. The duty of the Hunter's Guild is to add scenes to the book and bring story to the world. Which, if this series had gone on, like it, if it was selling well enough, I definitely would have liked to see this more. Like I said, it's interesting to me. Oh, God dang it. I was so good. I was doing so well. Halfway through the podcast, and I say the word. Ah! No cuts. We're keeping it in. It's interesting to me, as a writer, because I love to see the way they're plotting this out. Like, And to see a book being this in this meta sense, the reason for things happening is so cool. But obviously, we're not going to see anything more. We're going off the rails. Geppetto says, The Guild has penned countless stories of hope and also stories of despair. What it does is unforgivable, but it must be done. It's necessary to maintain the world, Red Hood says. Does Red Hood have a name? Who knows? Probably not in this chapter. Uh, so Cinderella, is, as we flash over to another scene, is uh, grabbed by Devonair by her neck and uh, explains that you know it's all about Velu. He was built to destroy the guild. The kid's basically a walking bomb. The mayor, I mean, heck, Horlock, that's probably a fake name. How many names has this guy gone by? Well, if it's been 500 years, probably a lot. Uh, anyway, he's a sorcerer used to work for the guild. Really close to the book, too. He got sick of the stranglehold the guild has on the world, so he erased his, names from, uh, his name from the record and turned traitor. Excuse me. He swiped a handful of pages from the book and joined us on the list, taking up our cause of freedom from the guild. He was powerful, even for a sorcerer. By merging his magic with the magic of the pages, he created the power capable of nullifying the book's scenarios, effectively nullifying fate. And we see that Grimm was supposed to be the next uh, main character of the story. But the Red Hood says, but first, boy, do you want to read it? I'll show you what's in the book. And the truth of the world and its pages. Flashback over to Cinderella and Debonair. You've already seen the signs in her. She spent the most time around Velu. And Grimm is kind of getting a little dumber, says, uh, and Cinderella says, see, you, used, you didn't used to be that slow in the uptake. There's a field around Velu, a special magical energy that nullifies the story threads around him. Spend enough time around the kid and you're freed from the story threads, the chains of fate written in the book for you. Working together, the mayor and the list created Velu using magic and the power of the pages. He's not a real boy. He's a living puppet. Velu Pinocchio, people. The evidence says, don't tell me you use magic to create life. That's taboo. To which Cinderella says, yeah, when you guys made up just cause. So forget about all the moral, <laughs> all the huge moral implications of that. It's like, oh, are you creating life? You know, it's a homunculus. Does it have a soul? Or does this golem have a soul? Or if I resurrect someone, do they still have their soul? Or anything like that. <laughs> uh, you guys just made it up just because. That, that, that's why uh, messing, make creating life is bad. <laughs> As Cinderella continues, it's like thinning soup, dripping water into the broth one drop at a time, one after another. Little by little, his presence dilutes the influence of the guild's written scenarios. So we see, like, obviously the series had continued. Um, we see all the characters that we met in uh, the game 
how Velu had affected them, how he would have affected them later on in the series, like getting them to fight the fate that was written by the guild, essentially. I'm guessing Bonkers, I have to say that name, Bonkers from earlier chapters would have always just stayed there, just working for the six months, I think, at a time on the ship, just getting free room and board. But because of Velu and his ability to change fate, he now decided to change his own fate and become a different person and actually care about becoming a hunter. Cinderella continues, let him join the guild as a hunter and he'd erode the control from the inside. Then, when the time was right, the list would swoop in, eliminate both him and the guild, and everyone would live happily ever after. At least, that was the plan. <laughs> in the next panel, the Red Hood and Velu are in bed. <laughs> the book, just... Out of, out of nowhere. I mean, I guess because it's a bedtime story, maybe. It, it's it's a weird transition, but, I mean, the author's probably only got, like, two or three chapters left to wrap this up, realistically speaking. <laughs> Unless we're all being trolled, and it's actually doing really well, and the series just keeps going off the rail for another hundred chapters. I really want that to happen, but it's not going to. <laughs> Belly noticing his situation says, uh, what is all this? And Red Hood says, easier to relax this way, is it not? Think of it as me reading you a bedtime story. Everyone must fall into an eternal sleep act eventually, after all. Here, look at the first page. And we see a bunch of gibberish. Uh, what, what language is this? I can't read it. The language of the readers. Uh, yes, these are the shadows of words projected from a different dimension. Now, uh, some people have said some of this is kanji and katakana. Um, I'm not an expert by any means. Some of it vaguely does from what I have studied in the past, but I, I'm not going to just say, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, so moving on, the book, was the, the, book. the book was first found in the caves under this island. When the first person viewed it, its discovery was already written in its pages. The laws of nature, the concept of time, living creatures, all the building blocks of the world were already there. This is what was written next. Dragons. Witches. Giants, demons, mermaids, and werewolves. This page contains the concept designs for all of them. We work from those concepts to build stories to build faith. Fairy tales, cautionary fables, heroic legends, monsters that eat humans, villages that are destroyed, the heroes who hunt and destroy those monsters, and the people who are rescued from tragedy. Everything happens according to the scenarios we've written. And we go back to Cinderella. Bellu has the power to nullify the book's scenarios. Grimm's memories haven't been erased, it's her character concept in the book that's been affected, eroded away from being near Velu for too long. Everyone in the hamlet lived in fear of werewolves, Velu says in his scene, because they're flashing all over the place. There were even people who saw their whole family eaten, who then went and took their own lives because they wanted to go join their loved, one. loved ones. Bongo's hometown was destroyed by giants, his entire life getting turned upside down. People are trying to become hunters so that they can change that world. And you're telling me it's all nothing but one big setup by the guild? Correct. Why? How can you do such a thing? For the sake of the world. All the concepts that form the structure of our world are in the book. What do you think will happen if Velu comes in direct contact with it? The mayor wants to destroy not just the book, but the whole world along with it. Wow. You know, uh, one of the other podcasts I had listened to earlier had mentioned like this is exactly what i want when the series ends this early and jump just like go off the walk off the rails just go completely and utterly bonkers i mean you've already got a character named bonkers just keep going 
and definitely Red Hood is going away. I'm a little sad. Um, and it seems mostly in America people are more positive than in Japan, but we're not affecting Shonen Jump that that well just yet. So, uh, I mean, I'm putting my money on it's gone. But what a ride. All right. Moving on to our next series. Jujutsu Kaisen. And I believe last week I mistakenly said that it was Tokyo Number 1 Colony Part 1. That was actually Part 2. Uh, I was listening to that episode earlier today, uh, seeing if there were any mistakes. And guess what? There was a mistake. My bad. So we're on Chapter 163. Tokyo Number 1 Colony Part 3. All right. Uh, I've seen some discussion on whether this is in the past. Uh, this scene I'm about to describe, or the present. I'm having a hard time figuring that out, too. I, I think it's in the past, because we see uh, th there's a bunch of kids bullying um, one, of the, one of their larger uh, uh, targets at the school they're at, it looks like. And we see Rin is nearby, but uh, Yuji, Yuji gets in the way. It says, knock it off. And they go go confront him, and he just beats the heck out of him. <laughs> they, they had the audacity to say, hey, no, no violence, <laughs> which Yuji doesn't care about. Just takes him out, palming one of them at the chin, just like kicking one in submission. And he looks over at Ren and says, hey, well, what about you? He says, me? And we flash forward to, because I'm choosing to say that's a flashback, because it makes the most sense to me. Uh, to uh, Fushigoro, uh, Megumi, Megumi Fushigoro. I flip-flop which one I'm actually going to say, so good luck with that one. And he says, hey, uh, to his new best friend and constant ally, will never lead him astray, Raimi. And she says, what? He says, if you're planning on going through Ikebukuro towards Shinjuku, don't. This area has lots of supplies, so we'll run into other players. She says, there are two reasons to go this way. The route is simple, and I have a base nearby. So at least let me take a shower. I've barely rested since yesterday. I flash over to uh, Yuji, and oh my gosh, names. I just said his name, Ren. Uh, he says, Higuruma uses this theater as a base. If he hasn't moved, that is. Yuji says, nice. <laughs> and in typical Yuji fashion, just walks away. He says, that was really helpful. Thanks. And Ren says, so, hey, wait. Yuji says, what? You're seriously going in? Well, I need to meet with a friend, so I'm in a hurry. I've never met... Uh, Rin says, I've never met Higuruma, but he once beat Haba to a pulp. Haba being the, like, propeller guy you just beat the snot out of last chapter. Oh, then I'll be fine. I beat a helicopter head, too, so I should be able to run away if I have to. But see ya! And he thinks to himself, Rin, say it, you gotta say it, this can't happen. He says, I'm sorry, Itadori. Now, could this possibly be uh, part of his curse technique? I don't know. Or maybe this is an agreement he has with Hikaruma. I'm wondering why he says, I'm sorry, uh, other than like he's, he's brought people to him before and it hasn't turned out well for him. And that's maybe how Hikaruma's racked up as many points as he has, because he has at least 100, which is why they're going after him to change one of the rules of the Kelling game. And we didn't see uh, go over to Megumi, and we see this foppish guy saying, Higuruma, sorry, but I'm Reggie. 
learning that I was right. And she was planning to betray him. And he says, she fooled you. And he cut, looks down at her and she says, why the harsh glare? You don't scare me. I'm warning you, Reggie's tough as shut up, Fushigoro says. We're wasting time. She sh uh, summons one of the Shikigami, one of his wolves, to go attack. And we get a two-panel spread of Higuruma in his work clothes in a bathtub on like a, a on a stage in like a theater or something. And you just says, a, a bathtub? Higuruma says, who are you and what are you doing here? Same to you. Haven't you ever taken a bath in your clothes? Nope. It feels better than I expected. All right. When I was in elementary school, I liked the swimming classes where we had to wear clothes. I know what you mean. These days, I don't care about much, so I'm challenging myself to do things I previously thought I shouldn't. Basically, I went off the rails in my 30s. Amen to that, brother. Do you find that funny? <laughs> and in true Yuji fashion, blunt as ever, yeah, I do. A little. You're Higuruma, right? In the flesh. I went to talk. No, wait, not so fast. I'm a lawyer. So talking to me costs 5,000 yen every half hour. So 5,000 yen, was that like five bucks? 50 bucks? I don't know. I, he said, oh, I'm joking. I just wanted to play the money grubbing lawyer for a change. So, oh. And Yuji, of all people, has the audacity to think there's something weird about this guy. <laughs> so you scored 100 points, right? He isn't an incarnated sorcerer. He's a modern-day sorcerer whose cursed technique has awakened. That means he'll listen to me. We can make a deal. Um, to be blunt, we want to put an end to the culling game. Or rather, we want to negate the forced killing. Can we, add your, can we use your 100 points to add a rule? Igoruma looks at him and says, okay, I'll be blunt too. Crosses his arm in the bathtub and says, no. Is that a joke too? Uh, no. The culling game presents possibilities. Sometimes the law is powerless. But what about the culling game rules? If the power I have received is real, then so are the rules. What if rule breakers got punished according to natural law without any charges, prosecutions, or trials? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I recognize the rules aren't perfect, but I want to preserve the culling game's basic mechanics, so I don't want it to end so soon. Especially when it comes to rule 2 and 8. And I think that means you die. Uh, uh, oh, this was said in flashback. That's right. I'd like to see curse technique removal at least once. That's part of the culling game ritual. If we wait too long, everyone in this country will die. Uh, I doubt it. The culling game celebrates uh, permanence. And poor Yuji kind of says, I don't really get that part of you. Well, yeah, welcome to the club, buddy. Uh, Jujutsu Kaisen rules all over the place. They make sense, but you have to have a, a degree in Jujutsu Kaisen. Just let me rephrase. Let me use your 100 points, Higuruma, as he flashes up, gives his technique ready to go, aura around his fist. And Higuruma says, have you ever killed someone who ticks you off? It feels better than I expected. As there's this, I definitely don't think we've seen this before. It's like this spectral figure with, a, a, almost looks like a gin to an extent, with the part like the, the upper body is big, but like there's this, Smaller portion of the body, or is this like this little lamp or something? No, not a lamp. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like uh, even kind of like a bowl that's attached to it, and it's almost got it's either a mask or just a really white face with one of its eyes like uh shut with uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? 
get them in hospitals. I've never gotten one. My family has. Oh my stitches. <laughs> I just struggled for a full minute. Like, oh, that's the word. That simple word, stitches. And that's the end of the chapter. So how do I feel about this upcoming match? Um, well, we don't know what Reggie's ability does. I'm still thinking that uh, Raimi used her curse technique on uh, Fushigoro, and that's going to cause him to be unable to fight back. So maybe we have a hostage situation going on there. Uh, for Yuji's side, I don't see him beating Higuruma yet. I mean, we don't, obviously don't know his cursed ability uh, technique either. But for someone to have racked up this many kills, they've had to have been able... Um, if I remember correctly, it's like one for a regular person and five plus for a sorcerer. So either he's killed 100 people, which is plausible, or he's killed people with cursed techniques and just risen up through the ranks that quickly. So I think UG has a chance in the fight, but obviously that will change depending on whatever his technique is. And I'm guessing it's some kind of judgment-based technique. Maybe he'll ask UG questions. And that will affect like a scale or something, like maybe who goes full Anubis on him. Who knows? So that's Jujutsu Kaisen. And now for our first chapter on the podcast of Kaiju number eight. Episode 48. So we say, so uh, previous chapter, uh, Narami used monster number one's retina uh, to pinpoint an attack on Kaiju, excuse me, Kaiju number one's retina. I, I hate this translation. It should be Kaiju. Uh, on Kaiju number nine. And I think this is... Is it Kikoro? Kikoro thinking this? I can't... No, oh, this is... No, it's Japan's oldest weapon. Uh, oldest numbers... Oldest numbers weapon. Uh, and Kaiju number nine is thinking, oh, this is weird. The attack I thought I predicted, I can't dodge it. Has he gotten faster? No, he's attacking me before I move. We've seen a flashback. Uh, Kaiju number one had foresight. By being able to visualize the brain signals of living beings when they move, according to the rec uh, this monster could detect their opponent's body movements before they even budge. According to the records, number one's attacks are unavoidable. It's been recorded as a truly frightening monster. Kaiju number nine says, I see it now. There's a point where all the signals are passing through. Oh no, this is Narmi. That's where your core is. Kaiju number nine says, no, I can't keep up with them. And Army uses troop style bayonet technique, second form, slashing fire, and shreds kaiju number nine to pieces as we get shock panels from everyone watching the fight. And uh, we get narration, oh, not narration, we get a call from one of the tech analysts saying, Commander Narami and kaiju number eight have defeated the base monster. We're losing the signals of the afterbeast that have been reviving. Everyone starts cheering, praising him, saying, Well done. But, um, Oh, gosh, what is Kikoro's dad's name? I wrote this down. General Shinomiya. Yes, I, I forgot his name, but I'll use his last name. This is, we're, not, we're not done yet. Oh, wait. There are still some afterbeats remaining. We must continue eliminating them. Oh, what's that Kikoro saying? That? Sometimes it's hard to tell. And one of the uh, commanders says, your daughter's gotten stronger. It was the same with Narami. I'm always surprised by the younger generation. They so easily go above my expectations. So, death flag number one. Why did I say that? Well, we'll see. And we see that because of the three of them, like this whole operation has been a breeze. And mission, uh, it's all mission complete. And we get this really nice panel of Kafka 
after he's gone from his kaiju number eight form to his regular human form. And Kikoro, Kikoru, Kikoru Christian, say it correctly. Uh, fist bumping one another. Is, I mean, it's just really nice to see the way that they've bonded together after all this time. And, and like just saying things without words. And we get a, a message from uh, General Shinomiya, Narmi, Hibino, and Kikoru. Well done, death flag number two. Which surprises her because uh, Daddy has always been, uh, let's say, hard-headed and uh, hard to please. And we get a nice, a huge panel of her just like accepting this information. Like, did I just hear that? She got this shocked look in her face, and Kafka gives gives her two big thumbs up. He's as big a dork as her, and she gets really embarrassed. And Shinami, uh, General Shinomiya says, "Continue prior to." prioritizing the safety of citizens and secure the perimeter. They say, Roger. But Narami says, something feels off. Something Kaiju number nine had said, I'll kill you and obtain that mighty monster power. Uh, he said that to Kaiju number eight. I get the kill you part, but I don't understand the latter half. What was number nine's true motive? Was it really to kill number eight? Was there some other goal? As they all get flat uh, beeps on their devices, uh, warning him of something of uh, monster reading has just happened. Uh, we get a line that says, so it made it. Too bad, Kaiju number eight. I wasn't able to kill you. Kafka says, you don't know when to quit. I'll do the final. But he's interrupted. But I'll be clearing my other goal. I'll obtain that mighty monster power. What do you say? Found you, compatible human. And Kaiju number two, as Kaiju number nine has reappeared behind General Shinomiya, who is unable to fight back seemingly at this point. So next chapter, we're going to see him in action again. Uh, we saw him previously fight Kafka uh, with Kaiju number two's ability. I think it was a shield, if I remember correctly, a couple of chapters ago. But I'm, I'm interested to see how he'll, uh, he'll fight Kaiju number nine with that. So, yeah. Fun little... Which, for Kaiju number eight, this is actually a pretty long chapter, at least how it feels like. Sometimes it feels like I just spent two minutes reading it. All right, we'll move on to Maguchan, God of Destruction, Chapter 64, Muscar and the Ceiling Bracelet. Now, Muscar is watching Ruru and Maguchan. They're going to go make dinner. And he's looking for the bracelet that she wears that is uh, <laughs> sealing his powers. And Magu-chan, in the midst of cleaning things, takes soap and starts eating it. Uh, Ruru smacks him and says, quit putting everything in your mouth. Rinse your mouth and spit it out. Magu-chan says, it comprises fats and oils and has a strong aroma, yet is indeed not made of flesh and bone. She says, quit it with the food review. Oh, great, you're all soaking wet. <laughs> and she hangs him up to dry. He says, as a bunch of bubbles appear from his mouth, my body gives rise to bubbles. <laughs> And Muscar is getting very angry because he wants Magu back to the height of his power. And he feels like she is messing with him and keeping him down in his little typified form. And unfortunately, as she's cleaning him, she gets oil on her uh, uniform. She says, oil could stay in my uniform. And she's going to leave the bracelet and her, uh, go away to go change. He says, no peeking, Magu-chan. He says, very well. I shall not spare you so much as a glance. <laughs> Magu-chan confirmed, not a simp. Says, you're not supposed to answer so seriously. 
Muscar says, just my luck, and that meddlesome, lowly human is gone, too. Adjustment of fate. My power over fate's position has decreased, but I can at least detect an unlocked door. Careless, lowly human, losing your precious bracelet will teach you just how weak your defenses are. But before Muscar can get there, Magutrana started putting the, uh, the bracelet around himself just so he can, <laughs> he can make himself even longer. And as Ruru comes back, says, what are you doing? It's like, ah, behold, my long and lean figure. <laughs> and just kind of just takes it off of him. And she notices that someone else was there. Muscar has managed to hide away. But uh, he knows if he's sound, then that could cause him a lot of problems. So Ruru and Magu, completely oblivious to his presence there, are going to go cook. And they're going to go uh, mix the batter together. And Magu twists himself around. And Muscar looks at this and, like, thinking to himself, says, don't make a god of destruction due to cooking. He's so upset. And it gets everything messy again. And I, I'm trying to figure out what they try to make. I, I can't remember. Uh, but uh, she says, uh, carry it off to the table. And Magu says, leave it to me. But unfortunately, the soapy water from earlier is on the floor. So he slips, trips, and the food falls in the air. And Muscar uses adjustment of fate. I'll interfere with fate to cause coincidence to happen. With one coincidence piled on top of each another, I will make adjustments to the tra- trajectory of the natto flying through the air and hits Ruru right in the face. <laughs> it's just after the second time, change your clothes and bathing. It's like, gross, I stink of natto. What are you doing, Magu-chan? Ugh, my clothes, my hair. Ugh, I'm going to go shower first. You clean it up, Magu-chan. And she leaves again to go shower off, get ready, and he eats all the nacho off the floor. <laughs> As Muscar uh, causes there to be a blackout in the area, uh, which uh, turns off all the lights, giving him the perfect opportunity to find the bracelet. He steals it away, and he's about to get away when, unfortunately, he stole uh, one of the rings that they had made for dinner and not the bracelet. Excuse me, uh, uh, not ring. More like it looks like a bracelet. And that's when he's found out and cries out of all the things, which makes him realize that he's there. And Ruru is upset, thinking that he was trying to perv on her, uh, hangs him up, then realizes, uh, oh, I stole other people's donuts. And one of the running gags of the series, uh, they'll continue, uh, Ruru will just hang up the little eldritch abominations. <laughs> and Muscar's turn is now. And she apologized. See, I, I thought you were a donut thief. Uh, you should have. And he says, you should have listened to me before you strung me up. And she says, well, you should have just asked for it. Here you go. I'll give you the bracelet, Lord Muscar. Uh, and he says, huh? And that's okay, right, Magu-chan? He says, it is your personal possession. Do with it as you please. Are you doing this out of pity? Don't underestimate me. Once I've recovered, I'll steal Mag Manuik, which is Magu's real name, next time for sure. And Ruru smiled. <laughs> as has always been typical of her interactions with Muscar, so I'm leaving that up to how Magu-chan feels about it. It's not like, like I own Magu-chan or anything. And Muscar has a moment of how the God of Destruction feels about it. Magu-chan says, Heed my words, Muscar. Even without siding with you, I will unravel the lowly humans and take over the world. <laughs> so he's been tamed, but not fully. Even with Ruru, and I forget the teacher's name, that is a member of his chaos cult, Muscars, and the the fake Magu that was created a while back. Uh, both congratulate him on breaking the seal when he, he leaves them behind. But unfortunately for him, 
uh, Uneris leaves behind a message. It says, if you're listening to this message, that it means that some idiot attempted to break the seal. Too bad. Even if you destroy this, you can never break it. <laughs> and for what it's worth, that uh, I switched out the jewel and the bracelet forever ago. Enjoy your continued life in a weakened state. <laughs> they all said, Cursed and Uneris! The ill will between the Chaos Cult and Holy Knighthood deepened further. Ask you to Magu-chan. Fun little cute little chapter. Uh, I love Muscar and Ruru together because they're just, they're good foils for one another. You got Ruru's endless positivity versus Muscar's, you know, just general, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pessimism. And like I said, they're just great foils for each other working off. They play off of each other well. Like she has nothing but love for him, (laughs) he has nothing but disdain for her. And yeah, that's all you need sometimes. A good, wholesome chapter. That's why I continue reading Magu-chan. All right, moving on to Mashal, Magic and Muscles. We have chapter 83, Mash Bernadette and the Shadow Eater. Now we start at Grief Manor, which is still a cool name, as uh, Mash and Friends, who I actually listed this time, so maybe I'll remember for reals without having to look at this. Uh, Mash, Lance, Dot, Abyss, Abel, and Margaret are facing down Domina and company because I couldn't remember the rest of their names and I couldn't find it on the wiki because that hasn't been updated yet. So that's not my fault. They're continuing on their Divine Visionary Test. Well, well, I can already tell. Your group doesn't stand a chance. This will be so one-sided and I hate to be a bully. Guess I'll have to go easy on you, huh? Which is a bald-faced lie. And Mash whispers something to Dot. She says, yep, yep. He looks over and says, hey, he says it's pretty clear you don't have any friends. <laughs> she could have just said out loud, but Mash just sometimes just has to be the quiet savage. And we flash over to uh, Finn and Lemon as they are watching through one of the little uh, magic mirror that's kind of like displaying the match for all the Eastern students to watch. And we get uh, over, maybe magically amplified, uh, the rules. The rules are simple. Find the five star keys scattered throughout the manor and use them to unlock the treasure chest. Whoever opens it and claims to wand the beginnings will be this year's divine visionary. And Mash kind of points his head down, puts his finger to his chin and says, hmm, I think I figured it out. We need the keys to open the box. <laughs> to which Dot says, yeah, he said that. However, the mansion is cursed. Be careful as you make your way inside. Note the test. Begin. And we get Mash's team saying, heave-ho, as they're all helping him go forward. Mash is still, it has moved back to uh, Dot's shoulders. Uh, if, the tre- if the treasure's in the manor, it's likely to be in the innermost section. But we see, continuing our Harry Potter thing here, the hallways are moving. It's, it looks like the manor is a maze. Uh, Mash and Dot fall down. Mash falls to uh, the floor and says, oh, a star. But it goes away from him, so they run after it, entering a room with bright light, and ask, why is it so bright? And they hear, welcome. As a face appears on the wall, I am the master of this room. Room master. <laughs> room master. Room master. Uh, narration. Was that the guy's name? Several chapters ago. Uh, a talking wall, Doc says. It is time to face my trial. As this mystical being appears, it's all covered in this ethereal darkness. Uh, 
got this massive flowing robes, these long spindly hands. Uh, like now that Amesh says, oh, what's that? <laughs> and Dot freaks out and we see Finn say, uh, oh, what the? That's a shadow eater. Why is something so dangerous here? And uh, is it Rain, his Finn's brother? He says, this is way beyond the trials they gave us last year. I bet the bureau chief's son had a hand in this. Levis Rosequartz. Oh, that's his name. Levis Lewis Rosequartz. Any moment now, he says in, uh, in our monologue, I had the bureau prepare a more difficult task for their side. I don't like taking advantage of my scummy dad's powers, but I'll do anything to win. Your group is going to lose before you even get to us. Vince says, that creature's no joke. <laughs> and the wall speaks. Room master says, who, who, me? I am a prisoner. I was transformed into the state as part of my punishment, but I'll finally gain my freedom once I beat them. Let me start by demonstrating just how terrifying a shadow eater is. Please try not to soil your robes. As a bunny appears. It's a bunny. Oh, that's cute. Until the shadow eater goes up to the bunny and sucks it away. Until it's a dried husk. And Finn continues his inner monologue. If it eats your shadow, you're done for. It steals your soul. It's a creature against which there is no defense. In this bright room, there's no way to hide your shadow. There's no way to win. Now, shadow eater, take their soul. Huh? <laughs> Smash goes down on all fours with no chance of creating a shadow around him. And uh, Room Master says, you've erased your shadow by laying on the floor, but you can't move while you're down. And, and a great callback to last chapter. There are no coincidences <laughs> to Mash's drifting as a baby. He goes around the floor somehow, but the power of being Mashal, uh, being Mash Bernadette. And all this motions, and Room Master says, he, he's crawling at top speed? But he, and he kind of laughs and said, it's too bad a monster is flirting. From that position, you can't even touch. And Mash twists his head around, looking up at the shadow eater. And kind of Superman's uh, sucking him in. Now, now he's sucking it down to his level. And Mash grabs the shadow eater. He twists it into a cross guard. But what is he? He's got its arm. And Vincent says, that's a triangle choke. <laughs> Smash has the Shadow Eater on the ground with, once again, his shadow not showing up. And Room Master says, getting down on the floor to cover his shadow gave him extra contact with the ground, but pinning the creature while on that position, uh, the chokehold is being performed perfect perfectly. Perfectly. <laughs> what brutality. All we can do is watch as it goes down for the count. <laughs> All of the students at Eastern say, no way, he choked them out. Finn says, hold on, I'm going to be calm as I ponder this. But what good is a triangle choke in the magic world? And Room Master just kind of gives this shock look of what just happened? As the Shadow Eater disappears and Mash takes the star. Uh, so we, uh, Dot says, so we got to solve each room's trial to get all the stars, right? Mash says, okie dokie. As the rest of our group says, are you two all right? Have you come from another room? And uh, <clears throat> we move on to Domina's group as one of their members says, Scott's the third. Of course, it's easy pickings for us. Did we even need to trip him up? He says, I never go easy on my opponents, no matter how weak they are. Oh, wait, no, or is this, uh, oh, well. Uh, it's all about winning for you. The way you laugh is so vulgar. But it's true, I fixed this race. It's not about ability anymore. Not that that'd be, they'd be a challenge anyways. As he hears a noise, says, what was that? 
This is heading our way. That's impossible. I made sure to set powerful challenges in their way. Sounds. Uh, oh, this is uh, Margaret's power, if I remember correctly. Uh, Summing these little baby-looking things. Sounds accelerates boost. This manor is built like a maze. You'd have to bypass innumerable walls. <laughs> as we see, Mash is being used as a battering ram to break down all the walls. It says, unless they broke through them. <laughs> as the rest of Mash's group is together, just going down wall after wall, breaking them completely. I realized it'd be easier to get the stars, Mash says, after beating the snot out of you. I'll try to go easy on you, too. He says, well, then, I guess you're not so weak after all. <laughs> I know I shouldn't laugh this much, but oh, my gosh, this series. It just makes me happy. I, I can't explain it. I, I, I can't explain it. Oh, mash, 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 mash. Moving on from Mash, Mashal to One Piece, chapter uh, 1029. Yeah, uh, 1029, people. And we're here for the long haul. The Tower. Uh, uh, last time on One Piece, we learned that Brachiosauruses, I'm fairly certain that was the dinosaur, uh, can fly. I think shoot lasers too. <laughs> Oda never ceases to amaze me. Uh, and this is a man who changed the form of uh, dinosaurs from the Zoan fruits uh, so that they'd be more accurate as new information came out on how they would have looked like. And then he makes a Brachiosaurus that can fly. <laughs> so Queen is facing down Sanji, uh, and some of the goons are saying, Master Queen's sword broke, but he landed a hit on that guy just now. Was it color of arm? Was it color of armament? Whatever it was, it's impossible. Queen says, I know you didn't use any hockey. I remember what Judge said once. Uh, Judge being Sanji's dad. I can give the human body an exoskeleton. I can give it abnormal regeneration. I can give it great physical strength. Most of all, most of all, an unfeeling heart of ice. Um, so Sanji has always been afraid of this. Uh, like his brothers, he'd been experimented on, and he does not want to become like them. He wants to keep his love for other people. And freaking out, he says, what's happening to my body? And runs away. <laughs> and some of the other uh, goons try and take him down, but they're beaten up by both him and Queen. As Queen is trying to say, you know, put on the battle suit already. Show me the power of Germa's science. And from the second floor of the castle, we get, hey, what's going on? Uh, <clears throat> as Big Mom is facing down Eustace uh, Kid, and uh, she's using Hera and Napoleon to get, take him down. Her, her homies. Uh, we see a counter shock being used uh, as Big Mom is also almost attacked. Uh, sorry, sometimes it's hard to keep track of One Piece. There's so much going on. And I love this series. But I need, like I said, sometimes like Chichu Kaisen and Hunter Hunter, I need like a PhD scientist and manga to like, okay, this panel is saying this question. And uh, Big Mom is just has the lead and she swings down her mighty sword to try and take down Kid, but it has no effect. You see, one of the reasons for that is Killer, who is facing down Hawkins. <clears throat> and Hawkins is trying to uh, transfer the damage he's taking to himself to uh, Kid, and sometimes Hawkins, if I remember correctly. Uh, he's, he's talking down to Killer. It's like, hey, you've got no place in this fight. Uh, 
Killer's allies are like, hey, why can't we intervene? But he's saying, no, you just stay over there. And he looks over <clears throat> to Hawkins and says, I ask you, release kid, you can have my life in exchange. But Hawkins kicks him again. Says, kid is fighting with Big Mom right now, I, I gather. Will he succeed in his dream of hunting down an emperor of the sea? It's good to set your sights high. If I'm preventing you from succeeding, then cut me down with those scythes. Or surrender, if you prefer. I'll put in a good word for you with Kaido. Either way, you stand no chance at all of winning this battle. You've seen the simple facts for yourself. Now you know why they've ruled over the sea for so long. You must have felt it in your core biological instincts. There is no way to beat them. And we see Kaido and Big Mom being envisioned in this moment. <clears throat> Killer then speaks up, says, don't get emotional now. Besides, I know that deep down, you regret the decision you made back then, don't you? Because you fear dying in this future. And here we are still standing. And we get a little flashback uh, that <clears throat> I mean, Hawkins is definitely showing uh, the regret, but he says, oh, we'll see who's regretting it in the end. Nice, nice comeback, bro. Uh, so, since we're talking about living without regrets, I guess I'll do just that. Which, Killer says, gotta sink or swim one way or the other. I have two questions for you. If you take damage without a proper conduit, where does that damage go? What do you mean? Hawkins says, you should know how my power works by now. All of the damage I take goes straight to Kid, as long as I hold a straw doll within my body. And we see, in this awesome panel, Killer slices off his left arm. And like, Hawkins, why are you doing this? How could you have done this to my arm? The damage should have gone to... And Killer says, Kid has no left arm. Which is an awesome thing to say in context. Because now it's only affecting Hawkins. Because of the fact Kid has no left arm. Second question. Once I take this one out, how many more lives are protecting your own? And he says, congratulations, that's the last one. Strawman card, death upright. The card of destruction. It means I can finally end your miserable life myself. And we get uh, the, line, the heading claws as a scythe uh, takes out the straw man. But Hawkins said, uh, says that straw man will not perish. It will come back to life as the cards dictate. Show me the ending of this fight. And he places down one of his other cards, which is the tower. As Killer uses the moon, uh, move Spin and Sonic and takes down Hawkins. And we get some narration. In straw man cards, the tower means the collapse of the old and brittle. And its hidden meaning is a new way forward. And we get Big Mom kind of like talking down to Kid, asking him, hey, you seem to be much better spirits. Now what's going on? He says, my body feels much lighter. And the last panel is <clears throat> his killer saying, get going, partner. So that's one piece. I won't lie. I had to spend a lot of time on the wiki remembering character names and motivations when there are over... <laughs> A thousand characters at this point, probably more. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Who knows? Look at the wiki. It's hard to remember uh, who was introduced where, what their relationships are with each other. I probably screwed up like who was speaking several times. Because one of the things I do like about what Oda has been doing is that he's pouring as much as he can into every single chapter. There's very little fillery scenes thrown in. And that comes at the cost of Sometimes having a hard time of knowing what's going on. Um, but overall, it's a decision I support, especially with you know uh, the anime, which I stopped watching forever ago. 
because of how much padding they have to do. Like maybe a chapter a week sometimes is what they fit in. Normally when shows like two or three chapters, sometimes even four. And that's one of the reasons Oda is doing this is to give them as much material as possible so that they don't have to end like Black Clover did. So I lost my original point. So, oh gosh, what's going to happen next? There's so many fights going on. I mean, uh, Robin's fight isn't over yet, I don't think. Uh, Luffy is still fighting Kaido. This is all over the place. Uh, I loved Sanji fighting against the idea of relying on something his dad made, because that's one of his consistent things. I want nothing to do with this. I will run away from this fight if that's what counts. And then... uh, Remembering, like, looking more into Killer, because I'd forgotten a lot of this. So it's one of the reasons I'm glad I'm doing this podcast, to help remember things like that. It, just to see them, uh, see his his motivation in this fight. That's real cool. So One Piece, I, I don't think, it's been a while since I've read a bad One Piece chapter. And even that's debatable. So, moving on. Our first One Punch Man. This is the manga. So this is Yusuke Murata. Doing this. This is chapter 151, The Great Obstacle. Uh, previously, Homeless Emperor was attacking, uh, looks, I uh, guess, uh, Atomic Samurai Eon, is that his name? And uh, Spring Mustachio. What a great name. And using many of his beams to just like shoot them. Uh, they're barely deflecting them with their swords um, and uh, fencing stick or whatever it's called. Rapier? No, it's not a rapier. Or is it a rapier? I should know this from the D&D I've done. Oh, well. And Homeless Empress looking kind of bored and says, hmm, stubborn ones, aren't you? It's hard to control the fire temperature of the kill with a comfortable rhythm, as it creates this giant ball of energy above himself that's continually shooting down more uh, blasts at them. He says, well, consider this practice. I have to kill billions after this. Can't get tired this early on. Neon says, Master, Keep it up just a bit longer, Atomic Samurai says. I'll achieve this soon enough. So he's using his Sunblade. And he's got to spend time charging it up. That's why they're protecting it right now. And we get a flashback. This is a telepathic sword. And his master, uh, Nichi Ring? And they're making that up? I, I can't remember his name. Uh, ah, yes, the Sunblade is alive. It gauges its wielder to decide whether to lend its power. If you aren't accepted by it, then unsheathing it is impossible. And Atomic Samurai says, a sword passed down from the time of mists. It's hard to suddenly believe just from hearing about it. Sounds like something out of a fairy tale. And he's thinking to himself in the present, holding it in my hands, I understand it now. It's searching from within me. And Homeless Emperor sends another blast down at them. They're all freaking out. And Atomic Samurai says to himself, answer me, Sunblade. What sort of blade are you? What sort of spirit will you lend your power to? And the narration says, in that moment, what came across his mind was the master he considered as a rival, Bang. And we got a nice chapter last time from Bang's past. I highly recommend that one. Uh, if Bang's mentality could be seen as a water, t- water stream, then the state of mind he had reached was a reflective water surface. Dispelling even the surface's sound, explosive sounds to that unparalleled level of concentration, the Sunblade answered. And we see this really sick panel of him leaping upward and slicing through this giant ball of energy Homeless Emperor had made, causing it to explode. And, oh, gosh, he looks like an absolute demon in this next one. 
homeless emperor attacks him, calling out his name, but he gets down and he's about to take him out when Golden Sperm emerges. And don't laugh, that's the character's name. And manages to take the sword for a second. And uh, homeless emperor is forced down from the blast, uh, from the shockwave. And Golden says, monsterization, or perhaps not. The sword must be the reason. I will just break it like this. And he goes off to destroy the sword until his arm is cut off. He looks at it and says, my right arm of 12 trillion. I'm trying to remember how many trillions the last time he boasted about this was. And it was like 100 something, maybe even more. And Atomic Samurai, she used the sword again because it's overwhelming. And Eon comes over to help him. Oh, I got assimilated with the blade. It completely took over my spirit. And Homeless Emperor gives up says, hmm. So that power has its limits after all. The price for this shall be a high one, uh, Golden Sperm says. Uh, Atomic Samurai looks at him and says, Eon, take Spring Mustachio and run away. But before that, the state you are in tells me you're completely depleted, uh, depleted, Golden says. To all heroes who are still alive, please form a line and wait for your turn to get killed. I will attend to you one by one. Yeah. No, it's definitely him. And Golden Emperor, excuse me, Golden Emperor, uh, Homeless Emperor is creating an even larger ball of energy to take them out, but they start hearing this the thump, the thump, the thump sound, and they all know what that means. This sound is. And looking down from above is King! And Genos, who is still protecting Tatsumaki uh, as she has uh, fallen unconscious, is King. You're fighting at last. And uh, the little mini, I have to say this out loud, the little mini black sperm uh, are looking around and talking to one another, saying, I heard they destroyed Elder Centipede with a single attack. This will be troublesome. And Metal Bat appears and says, King, that guy. Can't be helped, I guess. Wait, hold on. If it's King, sh there shouldn't be anything to worry about. I should just stay back and make sure none of those Black Swarm things get away. And King looks down. Oh, man, I love King so much. What a great character in this series. And uh, one of the little minions says, Manny pisses me off. It was just watching this whole time. Come on, let's fight. It's going to be one hell of a satisfaction if I beat up the world's strongest human. The Golden says, wait a minute. We shouldn't act hastily. Right in front of us is the Hero Association's strongest fighter. He is king, the greatest obstacle. We should be more cautious than with Tatsumaki at full power. Let's all do this together, as they're all going to combine for this attack. <laughs> king looks disinterested with his face. He's about to swear. <laughs> and inside, swearing to himself, it's like, oh, the hell am I doing? Even if Genesis was in danger, there's no way I can save him. And they think they're la he's laughing at them. <laughs> he says, I'm not looking down at you. What do I have to do for you to leave me alone? I mean it. These guys are for real. They're in such a class of strength that they won't be intimidated by the value of my name. It's over for me. If only Saitama was here. Now that I think about it, just where the hell is Saitama? And he hits from behind him, Ah, King! And he says, hopefully, Saitama? <laughs> but it's uh, a, a child emperor. Uh, child emperor is his name, right? And um, uh, Puri Puri Prisoner. Says, Mr. King, hooray, we can win this! <laughs> You got that look. Oh gosh, give me a break. That's the end of the chapter. Oh gosh. So as someone who, who's read the webcomic, I, I know what's going to happen, so I'm not going to speculate too much. Um, but what a, what a great chapter. I, I love the way Marada can turn ones like scribble drawings, which one has gotten way better over the years with his drawing. Like hats off to him as someone who has no talent for that. 
but like he can turn those simplistic drawings uh, Murata can uh, into this beautiful artwork that just hypes me up more the more I read it. I love One Punch Man. If you haven't read it, get into it. And that is it for our manga discussion. So we move on. We have three comics to discuss this evening. We have uh, Inferno 2, uh, Daredevil, uh, Daredevil 35, and Amazing Spider-Man 77. So we will go to Inferno 2. So uh, Inferno, what happened is a special event for the X-Men series uh, in way different contrast to an, the Inferno from the 80s. This is dealing at the moment with the fallout that Mystique has managed to resurrect uh, Destiny. Which uh, Destiny has been dead, if I remember, since the 90s in the comics. Uh, she died from the legacy virus, I think. And here we see how she was able to trick everyone. So she has for months been uh, taking on other features. She's been Magneto. Uh, she's been Professor X. Uh, and Sinister sees right through it, like going up to him as Professor X uh, to tr try and trick him. <clears throat> but she's also tricked the five by uh, appearing as Professor X. And the five is, if I remember correctly, it's... Um, oh, gosh. I just had her name. I just had her name. Summers. Summers, not Rachel. Not Ruby. Hope. Hope Summers. Thank God. <laughs> My memory dies the older I get. It doesn't happen to us all. So Hope Summers, uh, Elixir, Tempest, uh, uh, I used to be Gold Ball, so I think it's, it's Egg now, and Proteus. So they're the people behind the ability to continually resurrect people, uh, mutants, after they've died, which has been a huge boon for Kokoa, because, I mean, mutants die right and left. I mean, have you read the X-Men before? Uh, so Mystique is posing as Professor X over this resurrection, um, and I don't remember who they're supposed to be resurrecting, but it's definitely not Destiny. And they're able to implant her soul back in their body. And uh, she, Mystique, as Professor X, tricks Hope into putting on Cerebro's helmet to hasten the process. And she almost breaks character for a bit and cries that this is done, like uh, congratulates Hope for a job well done. Uh, so it tells them all to celebrate. And Destiny kind of rises up, uh, coming from what Egg has created, this little, uh, little obviously, Egg. She comes out of, says, I, I can see it all. I I'm back. And Mystique changes from her shape-shifting form to a regular form. Says, yes. Oh, my God. Yes, you are. Raven? I'm here. I, I feel younger than I should be. Yes, you're the age we were when we first met. It's my welcome back gift for the both of us. And how long has it been? And she starts screaming, freaking out, because, like I said, it, it, she died a long time ago in the continuity. So that's, uh, depending on who you believe, like five or six years, probably even more. Uh, Marvel sliding time scales are, it's hard to figure it out. They started in the 60s. It's 2021. It doesn't work out, but we make it work, because otherwise it wouldn't. You just got to believe it's real. So over the next couple of weeks, like Destiny goes through a rush of different emotions. 
like, you know, she doesn't like what Mystique has done ever since she died, but now she understands, and now she's glad she's back. So by week four, they revealed Destiny is real, is real, has been brought back to life, which was the end of Inferno 1, if I remember correctly. And now they're putting it to a vote, to the Quiet Council. And Professor X is having none of this. So I want, this is supposed to happen, like, uh, the vote is to remove, uh, he's going to vote to remove Mystique from the Quiet Council. And Destiny gets a good line, would you like for me to tell you how that's going to go? Professor X pauses, says, moving on. And they lead up to a vote against, uh, to decide whether Destiny should join the Quiet Council. And he starts and says, I, I vote against. And Magneto says, I agree. No. Storm says, as do I. But Nightcrawler spends some time pausing, thinking about this. And Nightcrawler has often been pointed to as like the moral center of this group. It's something he and Colossus kind of share. And he looks up at his mother, to Mystique, says, it's probably pointless, but I'll vote yes. Because I think it will please you, mother, and thus it would please me to do so. She says, thank you, Kurt. Professor X says, three to one. Exodus. And in the flashback, we see more of the machinations that Mystique has started. And she gets Exodus to uh, follow along with her idea, because he's always been someone who's been led by the idea of being zealous for a cause. That's one of the reasons why he joined up with Magneto years ago. I think he was also with Apocalypse for a while. I can't remember. X-Men stories, they go on forever. She asks him, what if I told you that there is a prophet soon to be resurrected who can see the future of this great land and how best to preserve and uplift it? What if I told you that prophet had a name and that name was the same as what she offered, a destiny? What would you say then? And he says, I would tell you I am a believer. And in the present, he says, I vote yes, Sinister. And I love the way they've been handling Sinister. He's been, at one second, very foppish and goofy, and the next second, absolutely friggin' terrifying. And we get a mix of that here. And in the flashback, he says uh, to Mystique, we have to stop running into each other like this, because obviously he knew she was pretending to be Professor X earlier. After all, it's a bad look for you, dear. You wanted something from me. Me, pretending to be generous. What do you mean? We haven't seen one another since the last council meeting, so they're both playing dumb. Uh, I says, oh, that's good. I love it when an actor is committed to playing their part. It's allowing me to play mine and outrageously question why I would accept the debasement of myself in support of you and your demands. Illuminate, good thespian. Spell it out for me. It's simple, really, she says. The great men don't want you to do it, and they will demand that you comply. And as a beat panel, and he busts out laughing and says, well argued. And in the present, he says, I also vote yes. Mystique in the present says, and of course, so do I, Kate. Now, Kate is what Shadowcat is going by. Instead of going by Kitty, she wants to you know, be seen as more of an adult. So she's going by the name Kate. And this is an awful look for her. Uh, this artist, ugh. I mean, I guess she's frustrated, but they make her look kind of cross-eyed here. It says, there is no way in hell I'm voting for this. Absolutely not. Uh, Professor X says, so we're tied four to four. Yeah, Shaw. Now, Sebastian Shaw, several weeks ago, is sparring with uh, one of the other mutants. I can't tell who it is. It ha- There's someone with four arms, but they're both, f- they're both uh, fencing. And Mystique is trying to convince him. It's like, obviously, she can't give him money uh, to bribe him because he has all the money he ever needs. And so she says, so we'll have to settle on giving you a good reason. He says, yes, it seems so. 
I know for a fact Emma's going to vote against it. Which is, we see what happens later, it's such a great move on her part. And he says, I vote yes in a present. Professor X says, then it falls to you, Emma. Vote no and it's a tie, which means it fails to move forward. How do you vote? And this is our final flashback. Mystique has managed to find something. And there's been debate about what this is. Um, some people are saying it's her brother's remains. I mean, but we're in this weird, like, uh, vague, vaguely Arabic setting that she took this box from. I- I'm not 100% on what this should be. I- my guess is non-existent for this. But she gives it to Emma Frost and says, uh, what, what will you give me for it? Emma says, whatever you ask, within reason. She says, there's going to be a vote at the next council meeting. And you, White Queen, are going to vote. And in the present, uh, Emma says, yes, I vote yes. And Shadow Cat kind of gives a obvious, like, uh, you got played look to her. And Emma Frost says, which I suppose means, welcome to the Quiet Council, Destiny. I should also mention the reason why they're voting for people is that Jean stepped down from the Quiet uh, Council to focus on being a member of the X-Men. And uh, the other one was Apocalypse. Apocalypse left after a Ten of Swords uh, to be with his Arakan wife, whose name escapes me. There were like 30 people introduced in that series. Uh, remembering names, I remember none of them. So Destiny says, thank you. It feels good to be back. It feels even better to be wanted. Now, you saw, said something about calling another vote, Charles. Or do you want to take my word for how it's going to go and spare yourself a painful and pointless exercise? Professor X looked at, looked at Magneto and says, I think we're done here for that day, for today. And we move over to Orcus Forge. Now, this is a location uh, based around the sun. They're trying to develop ways to stop mutants. Orcus is an organization that's composed of ex-Hydra members, ex-AIM, ex-SHIELD, uh, ex-Purifiers? Sure. There's like 10 groups that are involved with them. And their goal right now, they've recreated Nimrod uh, with Omega Sentinel looking over it. And she's kind of making sure, like, uh, talking to Nimrod, like, you've been online for what many here on this station would consider a short time. But we both know that you've been running simulations in tandem, aging up, as it were. Nimrod said, it's sufficient. I know I've just been waiting for you to get to where you need to be. And where is that? Here and now, I think. So you can look at me and see what I really am. And we leave that. And we flash over to Moira, uh, Moira X talking to Professor X and Magneto. He says, what do you mean Destiny's back? And Charles explains what happened. And... She asks, how and why? And Charles says, we should have seen that Nightcrawler might support the idea of his mother's happiness, and we should have anticipated prophetic fervor appealing to Exodus. Magneto says, but we never expected the White Queen to vote the way she did. Apparently, Mystique made her an offer she could not refuse. And the reason Moira is so upset about this is that two of her rules, is, uh, if I remember correctly, is that they can't allow the rise of Nimrod, and they have to make sure that uh, psychic uh, people who can see the future like Destiny are not brought because that could spell the end of Krakoa and they're trying to keep everyone there. So she says, uh, this, this is a disaster. It won't take her long to see me. It will take her even less time to see through the two of you. You don't want to test these women. They'll be blind for a, for a season, but once they see, it will be them or us. So it's a simple equation, gentlemen. Solve for X. 
Uh, Charles says, more of it, sometimes you sound entirely too pragmatic about actions that might lead to you having blood on your hands. She says, I have 10 lives and a thousand years of actual blood on my hand, Charles. This is how I always sound. And she looks at Magneto and says, well, can you kill her? He says, she wears a metal helmet on her head, but I won't do that. Or asks, why not? Like it or not, she sits on the council. I'm not a child. I can tolerate a certain level of pragmatism when it comes to how things are run here in paradise. But I have waited my whole life for this place. I won't defile it just because you find it expedient. Mora yells at him and says, you have to do something. There's still a seat that needs filling. Maybe we can make our own offer that can't be refused. And she says, that's just transactional, Eric. Not if the offer is truth, Charles says. That's not transactional, it's total commitment. You want to bring someone inside? Yes, and I think this is an opportunity to see what kind of footing we're on. And you want to pick the White Queen, don't you? Why? Because she's someone we can trust. Trust, she says. If it's going to be her, it should be because she's someone who will understand the gravity of what we're doing and what we might be up against. Because God knows what mystique and destiny you're doing right now. And you flash on later, and Sage is leaving her uh, <clears throat> location, but it turns out actually mystique and she's turning into an orcus scientist later on and flashing over to their station and they're learning that they're harnessing the sun to create power to counteract the the power of krakoa and we flash over to the louvre where moira is meeting with uh professor x magneto and emma frost and emma brings up you know i thought you died and she says many, many times, which, if you know, Moira in the Jonathan Hickman run has been retconned into a mutant. And this is the tenth of her ten out of ten lives she has lived. Like, there was one where she died at thinking she was just human. There was another she died on the way to meet Professor X. Uh, another one where she served Apocalypse. Uh, another one where she served Magneto. Another one where she tried with the X-Men the first time that failed. And a bunch of other ones. It's actually a really interesting retcon. Oh, God dang it. I was doing so well again. It's a cool retcon. Which I don't normally... I'm not always in favor of bringing them in. But for Krakoa to be set up the way it is, it's exactly what it needed. So they argue and bicker. And Emma reads her mind and sees all these distant... Uh, uh, not distant. Separate realities that once existed in Earth-616. And kind of breaks down and gets mad at them for their handling it. And it goes into her diamond form. It says, you've manipulated me for years. And now I can see what kind of a threat a precog represents. Well, I'm a true mute. And I sit on the council. So I will give the matter the proper consideration. But my loyalty? You arrogant fools have lost that forever. Moira asks, did we just make an enemy of her? Professor X says, I, don't, I do not know. Magneto says, oh, one thing's for sure. It's safe to say she truly understands the gravity of what we're doing. Morris says, I admit it, I was wrong. Yes, and the other two of you were right. We're better off with someone we know we can trust. And later on, uh, the new vote has been put, put, not put forward for someone to join the council. And Sinister says no. Exodus says yes. Mystique says no. Uh, Shadowcat says yes. Emma, yes. Shaw, no. Nightcrawler, yes. Storm, yes. Professor X, yes. Magneto, yes. And Destiny, no. Seven, four. Four against. We have one once again added to our number. Now we are whole. Welcome, brother. 
We are honored to have Colossus join this quiet council. In him, we can trust. Which, if if you've been reading X-Force, you know that is not true. I'm probably not going to cover X-Force on the podcast. I almost used that word again. Let me rephrase this. This is so difficult. I'm screwing myself over immensely. I hope you're enjoying my pain. Because I am. You can't laugh at yourself. There's cool. It's cool. The new word now. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to get a a thor. There's my lisp. Thesaurus for these words. But uh, uh, Pietro's brother, Colossus' brother, Mikhail Rasputin, is manipulating him through a mutant called the Chronicler. And this is definitely going to have huge implications for the rest of this series. So Inferno, number two, definitely getting some high grades from me. Let's move on to Daredevil, number 35. Yes, I love Daredevil. Last we left, Daredevil uh, had caused riot in the prison because he'd found out what was going on there. as he was in prison himself, Elektra has taken on the mantle of Daredevil on the outside, vowing not to kill again while she's Daredevil, because Matt, that's what Matt wants her to do. And she's facing down a multiple bullseyes. Who, uh, Bullseye has been cloned by the Kingpin to try and take them down, and she's joined with Typhoid Mary to attack these bullseyes. And the two of them, working in tandem, managed to you know, just wreak havoc on them. And continuing over and over again. <clears throat> and at this moment, uh, during the midst of the fight, uh, I think it's Mary being whispered to, and one of the bullseye says there's another bullseye. And she, uh, Electra, I think she might have heard this, uh, uh, looks to the civilians in the area and asks them all to run away. She says, it looks like two of my targets are missing. Oh, wait, no, that's bullseye. Uh, and She's figured out, oh no, he took hostages in the midst of this. What's going on? Where'd Mary go? I need her. The bullseyes can't have gone far. They want me to find their hostages to find... (laughs) And there's that classic swearing with just signs and comics. And she finds a theater in the midst of Hell's Kitchen that says, Psy Crimes, the story of two beautiful assassins, which is so such a terrible joke from Bullseye that it just rolls back to being funny from the way that he originally killed her was it Daredevil 181 all those years ago she says in her, uh, in her monologue Bullseye's lost his mind careful Electra, it's more than your life at stake here and Bullseye says welcome to my new production this is the end of your life and he starts laughing and he's got two civilians, one dressed up as Electra and the other dressed up as him. The guy dressed up as him, has, uh, as they're both chained up, has two sides that are about to... Uh, uh, actually, he just has the one side about to kill this unfortunate woman if anything goes wrong. And Bullseye says, uh, My two pals are hiding. Guns trained on my fine actors here, and they do everything I say. I'm giving Bullshy here the chance to walk away. He just has to reenact our greatest moment. And the actor, uh, the poor civilian in bullseye gear, saying, uh, please, don't make us. Bullseye continues, and hey, maybe Electra 2 here will survive. What is this, Bullseye? You're a psychopath, but you've never been off my rocker? Well, you can make your boyfriend for that. 
after our last encounter, I realized how he's been able to beat me all these years. The world's greatest shot is predictable. So while the scientists at Ravencroft whipped up high, my highly suggestible brothers, I had the shrinks do some work on my old noggin. No predicting my moves now. And Electra thinks to herself, Scar shows he's the original. Good to know. And this better works, Doc. So uh, Tony Stark had actually made the sides, if I remember correctly. Um, Yes, as for Daredevil, uh, he designed this tech for Matthew without knowing he's blind. Sonar, thermal, heartbeats. So she's figured out where the snipers are. Everything someone would need when operating in the shadows. And she throws them both in different directions. This will only buy me a moment. I have to move quickly, which causes both of the bullseye clones to get taken out temporarily by the size. No size to protect me. Need to. And the real bullseye pulls a gun on her. But the fake Electra, the forced into gear, manages to press herself forward, hit him in the head, causes a shot to go off. Then Electra, uh, Daredevil, manages to take him down and says, no time. The other two are going to be back in action any second now. Need to make this a fair fight. Need to play on Bullseye's vanity. Bullseye says, you're dead. Dead. She says, by who? By you? The world's greatest marksman? Oh, wait. Which, which one of you is that now? You're so pathetic, Bullseye. You couldn't even kill me yourself. And he looks up to the other bullseyes and says, Bullseyes, do me a favor. Kill each other. And they do. Wow. I've forgotten about this panel. It's like, I, I think, if I remember correctly, it was something said that they would follow his orders. So Bullseye runs away. And Electric continues, like, well, that takes care of two of my problems. One more to go. And she shoots off the chains on the fake Electra and, and Bullseye. And they... Both thank each other for saving their lives. Really cool moment here with a character we're probably never going to see again. So we flash over to Kingpin, who has given up his uh, crime persona since he's now the mayor of New York to Izzy Libris, which, if I remember correctly, she has been created for this series herself. And he's allowed her to be the new Kingpin of crime. Uh, that way he can have his public face and she can be the more private face. And uh, they're talking about how uh, her son, Wilson, oh, excuse me, no, Wilson is his name, that's the narration messing with me. Uh, her son left the business, and she can't really fault him for that, but he says, you know, of course, but be careful, Izzy. A ruler without an heir is a target. I heard your pick for Hell's Kitchen, Butch, has been quite cozy with you. Keep your eyes, Izzy, when you rest atop the pyramid, and Bullseye has shown up behind Wilson Fisk. And he says, death can strike from any direction. Oh, this is one of the clones, right? I can't... Uh, uh, we'll figure it out as we go along. So Electra is fighting what she believes to be the original. Says, you're right, sweetness. No more bullseyes, no more hostages, just you and me. But it's not you, is it? You've changed. A killer who no longer kills. Like a painter who no longer paints. Come on, Electra, how about an old-fashioned gunfight? Yeehaw! I'll even give you first shot. She points the gun at him. Says, it'd be so easy. Just squeeze. Just squeeze the trick. Uh, too slow, and Bullseye uh, deflects his bullet on top of a lamppost on a tire, and Electra manages to deflect it with her sigh and hits him right through the knee, kneecapping him, and swears at her, but then Daredevil shows up, the real Daredevil, well, not that Electra isn't worthy enough of the title, but he had already known this was going to happen, uh, came and says, no! And takes out Bullseye with one punch, starts beating him, but Electra stops him. He's, she says, it's over. Electra, you, what are you doing? She says, you, you needed help. 
and Christian McDuffie, who had brought Daredevil over here, uh, shows up saying everything's gone wrong, and the police show up saying, hands in the air. And Daredevil says, here's Bullseye, you're welcome. And they point the gun in his face, and we hear from off-screen Iron Man say, excuse me, officer, can we be of assistance as he, Spider-Man, and the Fantastic Four arrive? Uh, they having previously been in this run uh, talking with Daredevil about his decisions. And Iron Man says, it looks like you already have Bullseye in custody. It says, Mr. Stark, this man is a fugitive. He, a fugitive, who just, uh, and this is uh, Kirsten talking, or Kristen, I can't remember, who just handed the FBI evidence of a prison-killing inmate. I just got off the phone with Detective North. My client is a hero several times over. And Mr. Fantastic says, are you okay, Daredevil? So I think so, Reed. Thanks. The prison was creating this drug, and it got and I got a dose. Made me violent, but it's out of my system. Uh, but one of the cops, this really pencil mustache, no, yeah, or handlebar mustache, is messing with him. It's like, no, you're still a fugitive. You'll put your hands behind your back now. But then Spider-Man speaks up. Voice of reason this whole time, Spider-Man. Says, no, you're not doing this. Daredevil just exposed killers in your system help capture a mass murderer, and that was just today. What have you done? And the cop gets this angry look on his face, but he stops. Moved by Spider-Man's words. And later on, we get the thing talking to Mr. Fantastic, saying, Stretch, I gotta say, this whole thing feels like we're all on the edge of a cliff. And, and oh, Kingpin is narrating, uh, talking to Izzy still on the phone. He says, you need to be careful. Believe me, Izzy, I. And he's attacked by Bullseye, one of the clones, that's right, it is one of the clones, who stabs him in the left shoulder, but Typhoid Mary appears, says, get away from him, and kills the bullseye by uh, forcing him out of a building and stabbing him with her sword. And Kingpin saves her before she falls. He says, Mary, what did you, where? Wilson, I, I tried to protect you, I'm sorry. He says, Mary, my God, when you left, I was furious. Furious because I was scared of losing you for good. I need you. Forever. Mary, will you? Wilson, Yes, I'll marry you. <laughs> so, wow. Big issue for Daredevil here. Looks like Matt is getting out of jail. Uh, this is definitely setting up for Devil's Reign, I think, is the event. Uh, where Kingpin is going after the costume heroes. He's finally had enough. So we're finally probably seeing him deposed from being mayor of New York. I, he's going to marry Typhoid Mary. <laughs> Who saw that one coming? There have been a little bit of ship tease moments between them, but I mean, sure, why not? That is Daredevil. Now to Amazing Spider-Man 77. Uh, ben is narrating to himself as he's being attacked by Colleen and Misty uh, in the Beyond Training Facility in Manhattan. And just going, flipping back and forth, they're kind of like saying, hey, you're good in this area, you need to work on this. And we see a woman who we're about to reveal what her name is talking to Dr. I said his name last time. I should know this. I should know this. Uh, Marcus Montplacier. And talking about how Ben is being unreliable and, you know, <clears throat> they need to figure out what's going on. And she introduces herself uh, at this moment as Maxine Danger, which... I haven't read Next Wave. I can't remember if I've said that. That's where the Beyond Corporation comes from. And I think, if I'm remembering their name correctly, their, uh, the leader was Dirk Anger, which was supposed to be a play on Nick Fury. So, this continu continuing the dumb naming system, 
and uh, Ben leaves Colleen and Misty behind. Uh, Colleen, uh, as he's leaving, says, you're slow and you're right, Benjamin. He says, okay. And as he's talking to Maxine, he says, yeah, I've got an appointment with Dr. Kafka. Uh, she says, Kafka can wait. And she says, I won't bore you with how much we've invested in you, Ben. This will go more... And he says, I know, I, this will go more smoothly if you don't interrupt me. He says, sorry. And apparently what's happening on, on these panels here is like this weird fish-looking thing in a bubble and a weird look, robot thing in a bubble. Uh, these are references to Next Wave. I did see people talking about this. I, I guess, I, like I said, I haven't read it. And Maxine continues, I say we've invest, invested a lot, not to make you feel guilty or beholden, but just to reiterate how much we believe in you. You have a rare chance, with your power and beyond's resources, to make a real difference out there. It's not something we take lightly. And it's not something I thought you took lightly either. And Ben says, I don't. I, I take it, whatever the opposite of lightly is, hard seems wrong. I take it hard? Yeah, that's not right. In our monologue, says this is not going well. She says, the word you're looking for is seriously. Uh, yeah, that is the word. I take it very seriously. That's good to hear. Because, Ben, I can't have you taking off your suit and turning off your comms whenever it strikes your fancy. Says, I know, but there was an emergency and I, it's happened twice in the span of a few days, Ben. I know that looks bad, but I have no tolerance for excuses. Killer drop bears ate my homework. Broccoli men calls traffic on the FDR. The band Thunder Thighs destroyed my apartment. I've heard it all, Ben. I believe those, once again, are Next Wave references. She says, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I'm trying to make sure you're really my guy. If you're not my guy, I need to know now so we can cut our losses and move on. Not everyone can do this, Ben. I know you can, but I need you to know it. You, make, you have to make the decision on your own. Do you want to be Spider-Man, Ben? Or do you want to be the scraggly, sad, not quite got it together, almost Spider-Man who shows up every once in a while and asks his friends for money? And Ben says, I am Spider-Man. She says, that is exactly what I needed to hear, Ben. Well done. Enjoy therapy. And Ben's talking to Dr. Kafka, uh, who seemed very interested in being his therapist. I, honestly, I don't remember if they have a relationship in the comics from before this. I haven't read all of the Ben Riley stuff or any of the Scarlet Spider stuff from the 90s. Um, and he's talking uh, from Peter's memories discussing something that happened uh, with him and Uncle Ben <clears throat> and it's just the 22 of them and Kafka is trying to help him process all this all that's going on he says this whole thing is like reverse deja vu or something she says I wouldn't worry about it too much Ben but it's weird, right? Weird being that earlier, <clears throat> sorry, that he's missing some of his memories from what's happened. And is that a hint that Beyond's messing with him? Who knows? Uh, she says, I don't know if it is, actually. You've got a lot going on, a lot of changes in your life, very quickly. And even though most of them are positive changes, I think it would be weird if you didn't have react some reaction to that. I recommend to Beyond that they scale your commitments back slightly, just for a day or two. They'll give you a chance for your night off, a chance for your brain to catch up with everything else. He says, okay, thanks. That'd be nice. I know Janine would definitely appreciate an uninterrupted date night. Terrific. So we move over to the McCarthy Medical Center, where Peter is with Aunt May and Mary Jane Watson. And MJ is trying to get Aunt May to go to, you know, go home, get some rest, but she's not having it. And she asked her if, you know, 
you know, is it possible you could make some calls and pull some strings if one of those some of those Hollywood people you know or through your work with Mr. Stark? And Mary Jane says, Oh, man, it was the first thing I did. I called everyone I know. I even tried Dr. Strange. And what did he say? I couldn't get through. I think he might not be on this dimensional plane. And May says, that's confusing. Andrew says, I agree. And we get a helpful panel uh, discussing the mini event going wrong called The Death of Dr. Strange. Well, how long is that going to last? Well, the man has a movie in like a year. Probably that long. I, I thought about putting the last issue in the podcast. But, I mean... I'm not really having fun with it, so it doesn't fit my criteria. And May asks, and Stark? MJ says, no, I couldn't get him. I even went through his emergency channels, but it sounds like he's into something big. We might be on our own, May. Now, this is confusing continuity-wise, but welcome to Marvel. Because Ben, as the Scarlet Spider, is supposed to be helping Iron Man in this comic at this point in time. So they're referring to the events happening there. They're almost acting like they're happening at the same time. But... I don't know. It's Marvel. Nothing's, nothing's ever consistent. And uh, May says, nope. MJ says, what? It doesn't happen this way. Not to my Peter. I won't have it. May, what do you mean? May, please don't do anything crazy. I'm just going to make a couple of house calls. To who? Don't you worry about it, dear. May, whatever you're doing, be careful. Peter will never forgive me if something happens to you. She says, I'll take angry Peter over comatose Peter any day, Mary Jane. And MJ says, me too. Now, before I talk about what's happening in the background of this panel, uh, my personal guess is she's going to talk to Doc Ock because of their prior relationship. And this is her, like, maybe personal little, uh, hopefully not a deal with the devil. Spider-Man has enough trouble with that. But maybe she'll appeal to Ock does have some goodness in him. And unfortunately, after the events of Superior Spider-Man, the second series, he also gave up everything to Mephisto, which why Marvel has screwed over Spider characters with him, I, I don't know. Also, I happen to Miles and Champions. But that's never getting picked up again from the way that series got canceled. So moving on from that, that's my personal hypothesis. We see in the background of this panel... Black Cat, uh, Felicia, is looking in on this. She doesn't say anything. No one knows she's there. She's just checking up on Spider-Man, which is super... It's just super nice. Because, uh, obviously, he and Felicia go way back. They had this relationship after Mary Jane left all those years ago. I think that was a f after... The, no. I'm getting my continuity wrong. Maybe I'm just Marvel. But, yeah, anyways, moving on. Uh, Janine and Ben are trying to have a date night. And she brings up a really good point. Is that, you know, after he says there are no problems, and she says, well, maybe not no problems. He says, well, what problems we got? She says, well, I mean, a cage is still a cage, no matter how gilded. And she's talking about their situation right now. She's been taken out of prison after the Beyond Corporation made some backdoor dealings just for, for Ben's sake, so she could be there with him. She says, this is the best of the best, but every door has security that will only allow through you, through you and me and people from a list, and sometimes that's a lot. Uh, ben says, sure, it's weird, but what I do is dangerous, and Beyond offers protection from that world, among other things. He says, I know, and considering where I just came from, well, it feels bizarre to complain. He says, no, I want you to say what you're feeling. 
And as she's about to talk, he gets uh, one of his wrists activates. Uh, communications like, oh, he's got a job. And he leaves it behind. Typical Spider-Man. Happened to Mary Jane. It's going to happen to Janine. And he teleports away to somewhere in Midtown. And in narration, he says, Beyond Centella has been on point so far. But this isn't what I expected to find. Last I heard, Morbius was back to doing good work. Uh, had gotten himself together at that, after that last setback. This does not look good. This does not look together. And we see Morbius is over these scientists and uh, is this a back alley somewhere? Hard to tell. And it looks like he's potentially drained them of blood. We don't see that on panel just yet. And Ben hops down, but trying to act like Spider-Man says, "Mike Morbius, Michael, what a, what's going on here, man? Tell me you, d- you didn't do all this." And Morbius turns around. It's a Spider-Man. Ben says, "Hey, now that's a uh, some." Somebody take that lunge to someone unfriendly as he barely managed to get out of the way of Morbius's attack. As considering all these bodies, you being all wild eyed and covered in blood, that's not this is not looking good. Tell me what happened. Uh, but Morbius is not talking. They spar with one another. Uh, and he says, I, I need your blood. And Spider-Man says, This that's not what I want need to hear, Michael. I, I know I saw some of these people moving. He says in narration, uh, he managed to restrain Morbius for a bit with his webbing, but he breaks out of it, and he's checking the pulses. Uh, Spider-Man is unaware of Morbius breaking out, and he realizes he left. He says, Morbius, please let me help you before it's too late. But unfortunately, Morbius is right behind him, says, too late. And he says, forgive me. And unfortunately, Spider-Man is about to be bit in the neck by Morbius. And it looks like he actually got it as the last panel. So, oh, a lot of interesting things. God dang it. I'm about to end this podcast just on principle. Lots of interesting things happening in this one. Um, I don't know how I feel about this Morbius thing. It's like, the one thing writers always do is like, oh, he's relapsing again. Like, what was this like the tenth time that's happened? I mean, who's keeping count at this point? It's like that's all you can do with Morbius's story. Like, uh, the uh, when Ben mentioned he had gotten his life together, that was a reference to the last Morbius series, one that lasted like four or five issues, which that was pretty fun because it, it had him and Spider-Man working together, like, and Morbius appreciating like how how scientifically minded Spider-Man is, because a lot of writers forget that, but why is Morbius relapsing? Maybe we'll learn next issue. Maybe I'm complaining about nothing. Um, the whole the whole Beyond Corporation thing, uh, cool in concept. I don't know about the execution so far. I, I, like I said, I just don't know how to feel about it. Uh, this is a new writer. Uh, this is Kelly Thompson. The last two issues were by Zeb Wells. And there's, there's a marked difference, but at the same time, it's not, like, terrible. So maybe this gets better along the way. Maybe this is just you know, a rougher issue in, like, the 19 or 20 we're getting for Ben as Spider-Man. Uh, and amazing. So, yeah, that's it. And I think I've droned on long enough. It's going to be another long one. Sorry, John. Yeah, I... I'm definitely going to change the format of this. I'll split it up in the manga and then comics because this is taking too long. I mean, I, I know some podcasts last through even longer than this, but they also have someone else talking. And I don't know about you, but it gets tiring being the only one talking. 
even though I'm by myself. So, yeah, that's that's definitely what I'm going to do. Uh, so more problems for John, but what else is new? And we love John. So that's the end of our episode. Uh, go ahead, if you can, if you would like to, join us at StarvingWritersGuild.com. That's where we will be discussing all our all our books uh, uh, between the three of us in the guild as well uh, on your podcast uh, provider of choice. Please leave a five-star review. I say five-star because that's how the algorithm works. It sucks. That's just how it is. So that's I'll be begging uh, like and subscribe in that manner. And I do believe that's all for this week. So until next time, see ya. Next.